0: Chapter 18 part 1 defeated by democracy winter 2005 to 2006 of the us army in the iraq war volume 1 by us army operation iraqi freedom study group this librivox recording is in the public domain read by adam cable chapter 18 defeated by democracy Winter 2005-2006 Page 485 As the coalition entered the fall of 2005, many senior leaders wanted to believe they were approaching the crescendo of their effort. General George W. Casey Jr. and others hoped that the October constitutional referendum and December parliamentary election would serve to tamp down the insurgency and put Iraq on a new, positive trajectory. Many assumed that democracy would serve as a vehicle for reconciliation and provide a viable alternative to violence that would drive a wedge among different factions in the Sunni insurgency. Successful elections, they hoped, might end the wave of violence that had begun with the overthrow of Saddam Hussein's Sunni regime and gained momentum ever since. Many insisted it would restore Iraq to equilibrium, which would make it possible for the coalition to accelerate transitions to the government of Iraq draw down military forces, and plan for withdrawal. Yet a sense of fragility permeated the optimism. Many challenges remained, even if democratic elections went smoothly. Al-Qaeda in Iraq, or AQI, had expanded its campaign of brutality. Sectarian tensions simmered across the country, ready to boil over at the slightest provocation. Death squads from all confessionals, some wearing the uniforms of the Iraqi state, stalked the streets in a quiet campaign of ethnic cleansing. All the while, influential neighboring states attempted to manipulate Iraq's internal processes. Faced with all of these dangers, Iraq was on the brink of civil war, not peace, and elections held in this context would serve as the spark, not the damper. The Iraqi Constitutional Referendum Page 485 One of the most notable political consequences of the Sunni boycott of the January 2005 election was that Sunni leaders found themselves frozen out of the writing of the Iraqi constitution. On May 10, 2005, the newly elected Iraqi National Assembly nominated a constitutional drafting committee that had only two Sunni Arabs out of 55 total members. Fearful of the prospect of a new constitution written by the Kurdish and Shia Islamist parties, nearly 1,000 Sunni Arab notables met in Baghdad in late May and demanded a say in the drafting process. Recognizing the danger of another Sunni rejection of the political process, US diplomats pressed Shia and Kurdish leaders to make the process inclusive of Sunni Arabs so the resulting constitution would be a national compact, not a document subordinating one community to the rest. In early July, U.S. Ambassador to Iraq Zalmay Khalilzad and other U.S. officials persuaded Iraqi leaders to add 15 Sunnis as voting members of the committee and another 13 as non-voting experts, but the addition made little difference to the process. On July 19th, two of the new Sunni members were assassinated, which seemed to underscore the message that their participation had not been wanted. During drafting committee conferences, the other Sunni members received similar signals. Quote, when the Sunni walked in, the Shia said, You sit over there. You are only here because the Americans made us let you come. End quote. Casey recollected in 2008. As the committee did its work, Khalilzad pushed for the inclusion of Sunni Arab views, but few were incorporated into the final document. Most significantly, The Kurdish parties and the Supreme Council for the Islamic Revolution in Iraq, or SCIRI, representatives leading the committee, included articles making Iraq a federal state whose provinces retained the right to form autonomous regions. Those regions would also have the power to form their own regional governments, create their own internal security forces, and control revenues from new energy discoveries. The three Kurdish-majority provinces of Erbil, Dahuk, and Sulaymaniyah were already deemed to be their own region, administered by the Kurdistan regional government, and allowed to have their own elected president and parliament. Concerning the thorny issue of who would govern oil-rich Kirkuk, the draft constitution set a December 31, 2007 deadline for a referendum to determine whether the province would join the Kurdistan region. The Sunni Arabs bitterly opposed these measures, but Sunni representatives on the constitutional committee had little power to resist them. On August 28, the Iraqi government approved the first draft constitution without consensus support from the drafting committee. As Iraq edged closer to its dual fall elections, Multinational Force Iraq, or MNFI, concerned itself less with the election's political implications than with the necessity to protect the important voting process physically. As with the January elections, Casey feared that AQI and other Sunni insurgents might launch mass attacks in the days before the vote in a Vietnam War Tet-like offensive that would derail any political gains made. To secure the October and December elections, MNFI chose to use much of the same playbook from the January elections, including a temporary surge of additional U.S. forces to disrupt insurgent activities and protect polling sites. To this end, Multinational Corps Iraq, or MNCI, arranged the timing of the transition between the 101st Airborne Division and 42nd Infantry Division in Multinational Division North Central, or MNDNC, so that both units would be in Iraq in October, temporarily boosting the number of Brigade Combat Teams, or BCT, during the critical period of the referendum. Additionally, two battalions from the 82nd Airborne Division's Division Ready Brigade, Task Force, or TF-2325, 2nd Battalion, 325th Airborne Infantry Regiment, and TF-3504, 3rd Battalion, 504th Parachute Infantry Regiment, deployed to Iraq in September for a 120-day period that would encompass both electoral events. The 13th Marine Expeditionary Unit, or MEU, U.S. Central Commands or CENTCOM's Operational Reserve, also deployed to Iraq from October to December 2005. For their part, Iraqi leaders agreed to put in place many of the same protective measures as in the January elections, including declaring nationwide curfews, closing international borders and the Baghdad International Airport, curtailing vehicle movement, and canceling all leave for the Iraqi Security Forces, or ISF. As the fall elections approached, many native Sunni insurgent groups, having concluded that the boycott of the January election equated to a political disaster for Sunni interests, changed course and actively advocated participation in the electoral process. Many of these groups, such as the 1920 revolutionary brigades Jaish Muhammad and Jaish al-Islami, erroneously believed that Sunnis were the majority sect in Iraq, which would mean they could easily win a fair election without a boycott. In Fallujah, this new direction took the form of a July 2005 fatwa, or religious edict, issued by 15 clerics who urged residents to participate in both the constitutional referendum and the parliamentary elections. Mohammed Mahmoud Latif took this new direction even further by attempting to negotiate a ceasefire in Ramadi and announcing his intention to run as a candidate in the December elections. Latif's announcement split the Ramadi Shura Council, with most of the council's top leaders siding with him, but many of the group's rank and file broke away to formally join with AQI. By the end of July, Latif had to break off ceasefire negotiations with the coalition as a result of AQI assassination plots and pressure from the splintering of the Shura Council, but he did not abandon his support for the electoral process. Over the same period, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi had grown increasingly concerned with Latif's and other Iraqi insurgent groups' decisions to enter the political process. On August 13th, AQI declared those who would write or support the Constitution to be apostates, and that the judicial court of the Organization of Al-Qaeda in Iraq has ruled that it is a duty to uphold God's law and kill those who have declared themselves God's partners in drafting this void Constitution. In response to AQI's declaration, militants attacked poll workers, election officials, and even election sites used in January in the hopes of causing enough carnage to forestall the elections. In one brutal incident on August 18th, insurgents kidnapped three election workers who were hanging voting posters in Mosul and publicly executed them in front of a crowded mosque the next day. The Sunni groups that supported political participation resisted AQI's violent efforts to discourage voting. By late September, support among Anbaris for changing course had grown to the point that Sunni leaders in the province were confident enough to form the Anbar General Conference, which lobbied for a unified political front to represent Sunni equities in the upcoming elections. Even prominent Sunni insurgent leaders joined the conference, including Harith al dari Mohammed Mahmoud Latif and one of Abdullah Janabi's senior lieutenants. The insurgent group Jaish Muhammad went so far as to finance anti-AQI sermons in mosques, post flyers with names and photos of AQI members, and threaten merchants against distributing AQI propaganda. To counter Zarqawi's claim that participation in the electoral process amounted to apostasy, Latif and the Association of Muslim Scholars declared that participating in the referendum to vote against the constitution was equivalent to jihad the duty of every Muslim. On October 15th, the day on which the constitutional referendum was held, insurgents managed only 88 attacks nationwide, down significantly from the 299 reported attacks during the January 2005 election. Attacks against election sites were also down, from 89 in January to only 19 in October, as were the total number of casualties, from 213 to 49. With several insurgent groups actively encouraging voting and near-universal participation by Sunni political leaders, turnout increased dramatically during the referendum, as virtually all the Sunni community hoped to reject the draft constitution and its federal articles. But their unrealistic hopes were quickly dashed. When the final votes were tallied after the October 15th vote, overall turnout had jumped to 66%. The vote included near-universal Sunni rejection of the draft constitution in the Sunni-majority provinces. In Anbar, 97% of voters voted against the constitution, and in Salahadin and Nineveh, the no votes were 82% and 55% respectively. In the ethnically mixed Diyala province, where Sunnis were a plurality, 49% of the population voted against the constitution. Despite the strong opposition in these provinces, Iraqi voters nationwide approved the constitution by a clear majority of 78.6%. Sunni opposition fell just short of the referendum requirement that two-thirds of the voters in three provinces had to reject the draft constitution to block its adoption. The constitution drafted mainly by Shia and Kurdish political parties in the late summer became Iraq's new foundational law. The results in Anbar in particular gave a window into the state of the insurgency. In areas where the more nationalistic insurgent groups still had sway, election participation was high. In Fallujah and its environs, 69% of the population voted, a high enough percentage that electoral officials had to request additional ballots. In the AQI-controlled territory that included Al-Qaim, Quseba, and Haditha, voting did not occur at all because it was unsafe even to establish polling sites. Across the province, 32% of eligible voters participated, a sharp increase from the 2% that voted in the January election. However, the increase in participation obscured a sober truth, that while many Sunnis had decided to join the electoral process, they were rejecting wholesale the political changes proposed in that process. The vast majority of those Sunnis who cast votes were voting against a constitution they believed would forever transform Iraq and cement their marginalization in society. Yet their opposition to the constitution would ultimately prove to be an act of futility and a further sectarian irritant. That some Sunni parties had left the insurgency to join the political process likewise was not a signal of future stability since those parties generally stressed Sunni identity politics, opposed federalism, and demanded the reconstitution of the old Iraqi army, all factors that the major Shia and Kurdish parties vehemently opposed. Ultimately, the identity-driven election would only serve to drive a deeper wedge between Iraq's ethno-sectarian groups. Casey, in retrospect, concluded that the constitutional referendum was not a national compact. Seventy percent of the Sunni went out and voted against it. You had this document that was written by Iraqis, but it was not a national compact of the whole of the country together. In fact, it was probably more divisive. End quote. Exploiting Success, the Bridging Strategy, and the Plan to Reduce U.S. Troops Coalition leaders took the adoption of the Constitution as an indication that a turning point had arrived, despite the fact that Iraqi Sunnis had largely voted against the Charter. One week after the voting, MNFI's October 22nd campaign assessment pronounced, quote, Bottom line, the successful referendum period was a strategic victory for the political process in Iraq and dealt a considerable blow to the enemy, providing us with a unique opportunity to exploit success. End quote. With a new democratically elected Iraqi government expectedly in the offing, MNFI began to revise its campaign plan. Quote, We recognized that the campaign plan ran out in December, end quote, Casey later recalled. Quote, So we knew we were going to need another campaign plan, but I knew we wouldn't get it done until we saw what the heck it looked like after the elections. End quote. Having experienced a nearly six-month delay in the formation of the Joffrey government, the MNFI commander was concerned that the coalition would face a similar delay in the wake of the December elections and therefore aimed to create a temporary strategy to bridge MNFI from the election to the formation of a new government. After the bridge, the new government would have a four-year term, enabling MNFI to generate new long-term plans in partnership with it mnfi's new bridging strategy published on october thirtieth was built on the same guiding principles as the original august two thousand four campaign plan preventing iraqi dependency and avoiding the creation of antibodies in iraqi society by continuing to shrink the coalition footprint as quickly as conditions would allow however the new version also emphasized Casey's desire to reconcile with the Sunni population and to accelerate transition of responsibility to the Iraqi government and Iraqi security forces. New priorities that Casey encapsulated in the phrase Al Qaeda out, Sunni in, ISF increasingly in the lead, and bridge the gap. For the objective of driving Al Qaeda out, Casey's planners judged that the successful conclusion of the border campaign in the western Euphrates River Valley, or Werv, and Tal Afar had done much of the work, but a shift in effort to Ramadi was required to finish the job. Quote, AQI presence and pressure in Ramadi remains strong. Removal of this threat may be the key to unlocking the insurgency in Al-Anbar province. End quote. Casey wrote in a strategic planning directive on October 30th. To assist in this effort against AQI, Casey judged that information operations could be an important tool in driving a wedge between AQI and the Iraqi population. He ordered MNFI to take action to exploit AQI's blunders in Anbar as evinced in the Ayman Zawahiri letter. Casey's objective of ISF in the lead effectively meant an acceleration of his policy to transfer responsibility to Iraqis. On October thirtieth, he wrote we are approaching the point in the campaign where the work of the past two years with the ISF is beginning to pay off. The pace of transitions should pick up in the next months. End quote. Casey also wanted to accelerate the development of Ministry of the Interior, or MOI, forces, calling on Multinational Security Transition Command Iraq, or MNSTCI, to, quote, develop an action plan to operationalize 2006 as the year of the police, with a goal of having the MOI capable of leading border security efforts by June sixth and beginning to assume the lead in the counterinsurgency effort from the Army by the end of two thousand six quote, this effort would include a request for additional forces to create transition teams with local police. Bridging the gap, meanwhile, meant accelerating the transition of responsibility to the new Iraqi government, which Casey eagerly awaited in the belief that the coalition would finally have a long-term partner government and that Iraqis would create a government of national unity. Accordingly, the October 30th directive called for the creation of ministerial assistance teams to bolster key Iraqi governmental functions and for expanding the provincial reconstruction teams from the original three cities to nine. As Secretary of Defense or SecDef Donald Rumsfeld had long wished, Casey's directive also sped up detainee transfers to Iraqi control. Finally, the directive emphasized, quote, leveraging reductions in coalition forces to demonstrate the results of improving ISF and demonstrate that the coalition presence is finite, end quote. Coalition units were instructed to, quote, prepare for the next off-ramp decision, end quote. The one component of Casey's directive that took the coalition in a significantly new direction was his Sunni In provision, which aimed to create quote, an environment where the Sunni population sees the coalition as the guarantor of its participation in the political process and the rejectionists find the military option too costly to pursue. End quote. Accordingly, MNFI would press for the reconstruction of the predominantly Sunni cities damaged by fighting in 2004 and 2005, Fallujah, Samara, and Tal Afar. Casey stressed the importance of increasing voter turnout in the Sunni provinces, and he ordered an expansion of the Desert Protector Program. Lastly, he called on his staff to develop a Sunni amnesty plan that would include sizable detainee releases. One major component of Casey's ISF-in-the-lead effort was a reduction in coalition troops and a shrinking of the footprint of those that remained. Both Casey and General John P. Abizade maintained, as they had done at the time of the first MNFI campaign plan in August 2004, that with a new democratic Iraqi government in the offing, the gradual reduction of the coalition military presence was vital to ensuring the new government's popular legitimacy. Even before the October referendum, the coalition had steadily reduced the footprint of its bases in 2005. By October 2005, 18th Airborne Corps had closed 31 forward-operating bases since assuming responsibility as the MNCI headquarters in February, turning most of the bases over to Iraqi security forces. The base closures were part of MNFI's effort to move as many forces as possible out of Iraq's cities. Partly to force political transition with the Iraqis, as U.S. forces had done by leaving their bases in Najaf in September 2005 and transferring responsibility for the entire city to the Iraqi government, the first such transfer of the war. The reduction in the coalition footprint was also the implementation of Abizade's guidance to decrease the number of antibodies created through friction with the local population. Like Abizaid, Casey believed that no matter how much good coalition troops might do, they were operating on borrowed time because Iraqis universally viewed them as occupiers. By October 2005, MNFI leaders noted that 80% of recorded insurgent attacks took place in just four provinces, Baghdad, Anbar, salahuddin and Nineveh. Though those four contained a majority of Iraq's population, Casey and MNFI leaders believed the statistic meant that the insurgency was localized and could be contained, but only if the coalition sapped the insurgency of its motivation to fight against the coalition presence. A further MNFI statistic that showed 80% of all insurgent attacks were directed against coalition forces and not against Iraqis seemed to reinforce the belief that coalition forces were part of the problem, not the solution. In a September MNFI poll taken in Baghdad, 79% of respondents had expressed no confidence in coalition forces to improve security, 90% had reported feeling very unsafe in the presence of coalition troops, and 53% had supported attacks against coalition forces in order to hasten their withdrawal. Conversely, 78% had expressed confidence in the Iraqi army and 79% confidence in the Iraqi police. The poll, like many others during that period, failed to break out Iraqi opinions by ethno-sectarian groups, thereby masking Sunni resentment and sectarian tensions, and it did not consider the validity of polling results in such a war-torn, traumatized society in the first place. Nevertheless, the poll's results reinforced MNFI leaders' strong impression that opposition to the coalition was a major motivator among Iraqis. In October 2005 briefings to Rumsfeld and then-President George W. Bush, Casey argued in favor of off-ramping or canceling the deployment of a few Iraq-bound U.S. units, thereby reducing the coalition's military presence in order to, quote, remove the central motivation attracting foreign fighters and drawing Iraqis to the insurgency, end quote. Time was fleeting to make such a reduction, Casey warned, because Iraqis, quote, tolerance for coalition presence... Is diminishing. End quote. Beyond Baghdad, however, not all coalition commanders concurred with Casey's off ramp recommendations. In September, when MNCI asked both the current and incoming multinational divisions for input on the question, the soon to depart 42nd Infantry Division and 3rd Infantry Division supported the off ramp proposal, with the latter judging that, quote, Iraqi Army assumption of battle space will help mitigate the PAX personnel delta between three ID and four ID. The soon to arrive fourth Infantry Division and one hundred first Airborne Division, however, opposed the off ramp, with the fourth infantry division voicing the strongest opposition. This course of action placed 4ID into the medium high risk category for mission success and reflects the growing impression that MNCI is willing to assume risk in Baghdad during a critical phase of the campaign plan. In Multinational Force West, or MNFW, meanwhile, Marine commanders warned that they did not have sufficient troops for their mission and requested a reallocation of some of the off ramped forces to Anbar. Finally, in October, Casey's own MNFI Red Cell also recommended against its commander's idea for a two-BCTs off-ramp, advising that the situation was too uncertain for the loss of two brigades before spring 2006. The Red Cell's assessment matched precisely the draft recommendation in the August 2005 counterinsurgency survey, which had also recommended postponing any off-ramp decision until spring 2006, but these recommendations were forgotten once coalition leaders judged the October referendum a strategic success. Iraqi Attempts to Participate in the Planning Process For a document that emphasized Iraqi independence, Casey's October 30th directive reflected little actual input from Iraqis, a fact not lost on Iraqi leaders. While MNFI and the U.S. Embassy were developing these new plans, Iraqi National Security Advisor Mawafik Rubai wrote Casey and Khalilzad on November 6th to ask them to allow Iraqis into the strategic planning process. Rubai noted, quote, I can see there is a tendency, especially on the U.S. side, to prepare far reaching plans for all aspects of Iraq's future with minimal involvement from Iraqi stakeholders. I am fully aware that both of you are wedded to the idea of Iraqi ownership, but I am concerned that this is not always acted upon when the idea goes down the line. Rubai then critiqued the existing campaign plan, which, in his view, amounted to little more than holding off the insurgency long enough to allow a coalition withdrawal. People can see the writing on the wall that MNFI's focus has essentially been to keep a lid on the insurgency, transfer security responsibilities to the ISF, and lay the groundwork for the eventual withdrawal of coalition forces. Obviously, those objectives do not address defeating the insurgency. End quote. Instead of, quote, hunting down and killing insurgents, end quote, Rubaii argued the coalition and the ISF should focus on protecting the population from attacks and creating secure areas that would last even, quote, after clearing operations have concluded, end quote. Rubai acknowledged that such a strategy would require quote, many more troops on foot patrol, end quote, but was also quote, aware that calling for additional forces in Iraq is politically unacceptable to Washington, end quote. In Rubaii's proposal, instead of American troops, the massive number of additional forces required to protect the population and create secure areas would come from Iraqi irregular forces. Quote, this approach must somehow find a way to leverage personnel from the tribes and local areas, end quote, Rubaii wrote, presaging the approach the U.S.-led coalition would eventually adopt in 2007. Rubai added, quote, Native indigenous forces like these could be attached to the ISF with specific tasks and timelines. These tribal and local forces may be trained as a form of public safety guards authorized by the MOI, or Ministry of the Interior, or MOD, Ministry of Defense. End quote. Dealing with irregular forces was complicated, Rubai conceded, but the benefits outweighed the problems of hidden agendas and eventual questions of demobilization, and in any case, the dire security situation called for taking risks. Casey forwarded Rubai's proposal for comment to his Strategy, Plans, and Assessment Directorate, where it had a negligible impact on the ongoing development of the new campaign plan. THE NATIONAL STRATEGY FOR VICTORY IN IRAQ At the same time that Americans and Iraqis in Baghdad were wrestling with how to adjust the campaign plan in Iraq, senior leaders in Washington were examining Casey's transition strategy and questioning how it fit into U.S. national objectives. At the White House, National Security Adviser Stephen J. Hadley asked Rumsfeld to have Casey explain the details of the campaign plan. What followed was a series of video conferences in which Casey, joined by Abizade, explained how the mission in Iraq had evolved and where MNFI envisioned the campaign headed. At the conclusion of this interrogative process in the early fall, the National Security Council, or NSC, gave Casey no significant course corrections to his strategy, but instead in November, catching MNFI somewhat off guard, published a document optimistically titled, National Strategy for Victory in Iraq. End quote, the first publicly released national level strategy for the war in Iraq. The national strategy identified Iraq as quote, the central front in the global war on terror, end quote, and it noted that an American failure there would create a safe haven for terrorists, cause the United States to lose the trust of Middle East reformers, and leave Iraq to slide into tribal and sectarian chaos. The enemy opposing U.S. efforts was loosely defined as Sunni Arab rejectionists, former regime loyalists, and terrorists associated with Al-Qaeda. Like Casey's campaign plan, the national strategy did not consider Shia militants a viable threat to coalition goals, and assumed that, quote, such elements can be handled by Iraqi forces alone and or assimilated into the political process in the short term. End quote. The national strategy laid out a conditions-based, integrated approach along political, security, and economic lines. The political track, isolate, engage, build, involved isolation of enemy elements and engagement of potential partners willing to, quote, turn away from violence, end quote, while building, quote, stable, pluralistic, and effective national institutions, end quote. The security track, clear, hold, build, focused on clearing, quote, areas of enemy control, end quote, holding, quote, areas freed from enemy control, end quote, and building, quote, Iraqi security forces and the capacity of local institutions, end quote. The economic track, restore, reform, build, consisted of the restoration of Iraq's infrastructure, reform of Iraq's economy to make it self-sustaining, and building, quote, the capacity of Iraqi institutions to maintain infrastructure, rejoin the international economic community, and improve the general welfare of all Iraqis, End quote. From Casey's perspective, Hadley and the NSC had slightly tweaked the MNFI campaign plan and made it into the national strategy document. Khalilzad agreed, later commenting that, quote, if you look at the document, and you look at what we were doing on the ground, you will find that it was more a reflection of what was already happening, end quote. a process exactly backward from the common military expectation that policymakers would issue explicit wartime guidance that the military would, in turn, use to write military plans. Quote, Someone once told me that the decision-making process at the national level is idiosyncratic at best, Casey later wrote, that is an important lesson for future leaders when providing military advice do not look for the military decision-making process at the national level despite their increased interaction with hadley and the nsc casey and Abazade were frustrated by their seeming inability to explain the character of the iraq conflict to counterparts in washington quote, I would get asked, why are guys going off post? They are just driving around and getting hit by improvised explosive devices, end quote, Casey recalled later. The day-to-day nuances of counterinsurgency warfare combined with complicated metrics for showing progress were difficult for many senior political decision makers to comprehend, Casey concluded. Bush and his senior advisers had understood the high-intensity battles of late 2004 in Fallujah, Najaf, and Samara much more easily than the 2005 counterinsurgency campaign that was largely devoid of such decisive action, Casey told military historians years later. In their near-daily phone conversations, he and Abizade frequently commiserated on the issue, asking each other after video conferences with NSC principals, quote, Do you think we got through to them today? End quote. Casey's struggles in communicating with Washington had come to a head when the general, who had long desired to reduce the U.S. footprint as part of his 2004 campaign plan, told reporters in early August 2005 that the United States was on track to make, quote, some fairly substantial reductions, end quote, in the period after the October and December elections. The pronouncement was ahead of official U.S. policy and was corrected publicly a few days later by Bush who noted that talk of troop reduction was, quote, speculation, end quote, and that, quote, pulling the troops out now would send a terrible signal to the enemy, end quote. While the incident was quickly overshadowed by larger issues related to the two Iraqi elections, it highlighted the difficulties an operational commander faced in trying to stay synchronized with U.S. national strategy. With the publication of the national strategy, Casey and Khalilzad together produced a new joint U.S. Embassy and MNFI mission statement, a significant change from the August 2004 mission statement that had been created by MNFI and merely endorsed by the U.S. Embassy. Even so, the new objectives were only slightly modified from the original, calling for, quote, an Iraq at peace with its neighbors and an ally in the war on terror with a representative government that respects the human rights of all Iraqis, security forces sufficient to maintain domestic order and to deny Iraq as a safe haven for terrorists, and effective national, regional, and provincial institutions capable of meeting the needs of the Iraqi people and creating conditions for rule of law and prosperity. End quote. The only additions were that Iraq would be an ally in the war on terrorism, and its institutions would be capable of establishing the rule of law. These new goals would be overcome quickly by events, as at the end of 2005, Iraq would not have a truly representative government that respected the rights of all Iraqis. Preamble to Civil War Shia Sectarians Inside the Iraqi Government page 494. The Interior Ministry and the Jaduria Bunker Despite MNFI's optimism that the fall 2005 elections would be uniformly positive events, the underlying tensions between the Shia and Sunni communities ultimately made the elections even more partisan than those in January. In retrospect, the elections served as an accelerant to sectarianism, as factions postured themselves for what they rightly expected would be a violent power struggle after the election outcome. For its part, Al-Qaeda in Iraq continued its car bomb campaign against Shia targets, and while the overall effectiveness of AQI attacks diminished after early summer 2005, they continued to target Shia neighborhoods and exhaust Shia patience. On September 14th, Zarqawi's men struck Baghdad with twelve coordinated car bombs, killing 167 and wounding nearly 600. On September 16th, they hit Shia worshippers at a shrine in Turs Komato, 209 kilometers north of Baghdad, killing a dozen and wounding 23. In one horrific incident south of Baghdad on September 26th, Sunni extremists dressed as Iraqi police entered a school and executed five Shia teachers and their driver in a classroom. Near simultaneous car bombs in Balad on September 29th resulted in 95 casualties. Large scale attacks against predominantly Shia areas a few weeks later on November 18th and 19th resulted in another 324 civilian casualties. As AQI did its murderous work, various government ministries dominated by Shia militant groups who were part of the Jafari government began to withhold basic services in many Sunni areas, forcing Sunnis to cross into other, more dangerous neighborhoods. Along the routes to these neighborhoods stood several checkpoints, which had become dangerous places where Sunnis were subject to intimidation or abduction from militia-allied police or even from militias in government uniforms. Caught between two militant sides, many civilians of both sects found themselves facing a choice between seeking protection from sectarian militias or succumbing to sectarian cleansing, as Jaish al-Mahdi, or J.A.M., Badr Corps, and Al-Qaeda in Iraq each began to take control of various neighborhoods in Baghdad. In some areas, J.A.M. attempted to emulate Lebanese Hezbollah's model of gaining popular legitimacy by providing public services. The militia gave cash to civilians affected by the violence in Baghdad and provided lodging, usually in abandoned Sunni houses, to Shia refugees displaced by the fighting. In October, Iraq's Sunni Deputy Prime Minister and nine other Sunni ministers wrote Prime Minister Ibrahim al jafari demanding action against Shia militants who carried out acts of violence against Sunnis with what appeared to be government sanctions. The six-page letter catalogued alleged abuses by the Ministry of the Interior, including systemic torture, underground detention facilities, executions, and abductions of Sunnis. The ministers charged that the killers often used Interior Ministry uniforms and vehicles, and even claimed to be from the Interior Ministry's public order and special commando units. According to the letter, many of the victims were tortured, with eyes poked out, noses cut off, and hands drilled. Those who were killed were nearly always found bound or handcuffed. Our people are being executed under the official or semi official cover of the law, the Sunni ministers wrote, with the result that these acts have transferred Iraqis from living under the fear of terrorism to living under governmental terror. It is unsafe for an Iraqi to be detained. Most Iraqis have come to think it better to resist and die in his home rather than having his head pierced or body burned or parts cut off and his body thrown on the road to be eaten by the hungry animals. End quote. The Jaffari government made little effort to investigate the accusations. The extent to which Sunni complaints were ignored in the Interior Ministry was made clear on November 13, 2005, when U.S. soldiers inspected a central Baghdad facility known as the Jadaria Bunker, run by the Ministry's Special Interrogations Unit. After hearing a parent's complaint that his son had been detained illegally at the facility, Brigadier General Karl Horst, assistant commander of the 3rd Infantry Division in Baghdad, led a team of soldiers to search the bunker. Acting on his intuition, Horst demanded access to an area behind a locked door that Iraqi guides purposely avoided. There, he discovered 169 malnourished prisoners, 166 of them Sunnis, all showing signs of torture. The bunker and the organization that ran it had been kept off the Interior Ministry's books and not officially sanctioned, likely because they were being run by Senior Bader Corps Officer Bashir Nasser al-Wandi, also known as Engineer Ahmed, whom Bayan Jaber had appointed as deputy director of the Interior Ministry's Intelligence Directorate. When Khalilzad questioned Interior Minister Jabber about Engineer Ahmed's facility, Jabber described the detainees as terrorists and downplayed the abuse by saying that the prisoners, quote, weren't beheaded, they weren't killed, there was no torture, end quote. An MNFI investigation of the incident uncovered additional evidence of sectarian activities by the Jafri government. Investigators found that Engineer Ahmed led an organization known as the Special Investigations Directorate, or SID, that since its formation in July 2005 had, quote, "...illegally detained, abused, tortured, and murdered Iraqi citizens." End quote. Many of the SID's victims were allegedly, quote, former regime personnel, former Ba'ath Party members, or former military officers who had participated in the Iran-Iraq war, quote. The SID's Jadaria bunker was just a part of a larger sectarian machinery, a holding area where SID members exacted confessions through torture before the victims were executed, ransomed, or tried in the Iraqi courts. The SID men had plenty of political top cover. Jabber, the MNFI investigation found, quote, had knowledge of illicit activities taking place in the bunker, and failed to act on multiple reports of abuse and torture in the bunker. In addition, when complaints of the bunker reached Iraq's nascent judicial system, investigative judges who objected to the illegal procedures were reassigned, some of them by order of Chief Justice Medat al-Mahmoud, others were threatened by Engineer Ahmed, One investigative judge who opened an inquiry became the victim of an unsolved murder. MNFI concluded that the investigation had been "...constrained by the non-permissive environment, the lack of Iraqi government cooperation, reluctance of witnesses to come forward, and the perception of official complicity or complacency." Public news of the facility heightened the tension between Iraq's Sunni and Shia communities before the December elections. The bunker was the first indisputable evidence that sectarian violence had been institutionalized, originating within the government and its police forces, and was not just the work of rogue Shia militias. It also confirmed Sunni leaders' worst fears, fueling the Sunni rejectionists' argument that the only way to survive was to continue resistance against the Shia government and the coalition. The discovery also compounded Sunni frustrations with the coalition, as Casey previously received no fewer than 40 letters from senior political and religious leaders alleging government abuse of detainees, but was unable to produce a tangible change in Jobber's behavior. The coalition's reluctance to hold Jabber and Prime Minister Joffrey accountable played into Sunni rejectionist claims that the United States was not to be trusted because its actions only served to protect the Shia. As notorious as the Jadariya bunker became, it represented a mere fraction of the sectarian infiltration of the Interior Ministry and other security offices in 2005. MNFI estimated that the various Iraqi security ministries ran at least 8 to 10 more unauthorized facilities that held between 2,000 and 10,000 prisoners. Further accentuating the Interior Ministry's problems, in October, MNSTCI had discovered that the Ministry's Public Affairs had issued a public service announcement video depicting Iraqi police dancing over dead bodies and chanting praise for Muqtada's Sadr. MNSTCI offered to retrain the Ministry's Public Affairs personnel, but Jabber had promised to fire those responsible instead. Sectarian moves were not limited to the Interior Ministry. In the first week of December, Prime Minister Jafari issued orders that would have eliminated the Iraqi Joint Headquarters and replaced ten Sunni senior leaders with Shia officers. Among the purged would be three division commanders and the respected secular Shia officer Lieutenant General Nasir Abadi, the deputy commander of the Iraqi Joint Forces. Replacing Abadi would be Lieutenant General Mohan al-Faraji, an officer whom Lieutenant General Martin Dempsey described as, quote, a bad piece of work. End quote. Sensing the danger in Joffrey's changes, Casey's British deputy MNFI commander, Lieutenant General John Nicholas Houghton, warned that quote, the overpowering importance of the proposed changes is the political impact they would have in marginalizing the Sunnis at a critical time and in placing the Ministry of Defense at the mercy of an extremist Shia agenda. The political motivation behind the proposed moves is self-evident. End quote. Joffrey had issued his decrees without notifying Sadun Dulaimi, the Sunni minister of defense, who, when learning of the proposed actions, begged the coalition to fight the changes, which Casey quickly did. MNFI's timely intervention stopped the purge, but the fact that Joffrey had attempted the move added to Sunni leaders' perceptions of organized wrongdoing by the Shia parties in the government. As coalition leaders in Baghdad responded to the Jadaria bunker incident and Joffrey's power play, coalition units throughout central Iraq were beginning to report similar instances of quasi-official sectarian killing. The clearest perspective on the matter came from the 3rd Infantry Division, whose commander, Major General William Webster, later recalled that during the winter of 2005, quote, I kept telling General Casey and Lieutenant General Vines that, in spite of the fact that the election had been held, sectarian violence, to include inside the Iraqi security forces, was becoming the foremost problem that we had to deal with. We found people murdered, beheaded, ripped apart, dumped into rivers, and we found that the majority of attacks were taking place at the mixed margins of the neighborhoods." Reports from the Baghdad Morgue in December showed that 780 murdered bodies, 400 of which had torture or execution wounds, seemed to confirm Webster's warnings. Webster believed most of the trouble came from the Interior Ministry's police forces, which, according to his unit's reports, were not just complicit with sectarian violence, but directly involved in it. Quote, the Ministry of the Interior, absolutely, from top to bottom, could not be trusted, with very minor exceptions, End quote. Webster reiterated later. Quote, you could not trust them. They lied every day, they tortured people, and they had hidden detention facilities and prisons. End quote. The worst, Webster judged, were the special police, which did not have unit boundaries, allowing them to operate across Baghdad with impunity and providing them a convenient excuse to operate in Sunni areas far from their bases. In an attempt to rein in some of their illicit activity, Webster forced special police units in Baghdad to accept unit boundaries and, to signal his seriousness, promised them we would kill them from their leader on down if they came across their boundary and conducted operations in an adjacent unit area. Webster's threat slowed the Special Police's activities for a time, but the problem of sectarianism in the Ministry of the Interior remained widespread. In Bacaba in MNDNC, Colonel Stephen Salazar and his 3rd Brigade, 3rd Infantry Division, shared Webster's conclusion about the Special Police. When Salazar learned in November 2005 that seven battalions of special police would descend on the predominantly Sunni Bakuba for an MOI-initiated operation, he formally objected in an email that the operation, quote, would be a disaster of biblical proportions and the worst possible thing that could happen to Bakuba, end quote. Though MNDNC Commander Major General Thomas Turner and MNCI Commander Lieutenant General John R. Vines concurred with Salazar's request to stop the operation, MNFI was unwilling to shut down a rare example of an Iraqi-planned and Iraqi-led mission. As the special police arrived, Salazar ordered his units to scrutinize their every move to prevent gross abuses, but the operation was still little more than a thinly-veiled roundup of nearly 400 Sunni military-aged males. Only Salazar's personal intervention prevented interior ministry units from detaining the Sunni mayor of Bakuba without any evidence. Nevertheless, MNSTCI's November assessment to MNFI touted the mission as, quote, the Special Police Force's first independent division-level operation. The Special Police planned and executed this operation with minimal support from coalition forces. This operation will serve as a model for future Special Police operations. End quote. Warnings similar to Webster's and Salazar's had already gone directly to the Pentagon. On September 19, 2005, James Steele, a retired Special Forces officer who had served as a civilian advisor to the Special Police Commandos in 2004 and was a trusted confidant of Rumsfeld, wrote the secretary about his observations of the Interior Ministry during an official visit to Iraq. Quote, there is a systemic effort by SCIRI and its Badr militia to take control of the high-end units within MOI, end quote, Steele reported, adding that, quote, This effort ranges from assigning Badr officers to command units to protecting thugs like the commander of the Wolf Brigade who had been involved in death squad activities, extortion of detainees, and a general pattern of corruption. Nearly all of the new recruits within the commandos are Shia. Many of them are Badr members. This effort also contributes to the possibility of a Lebanon-type scenario where a civil war ensues with the Sunnis being driven into the arms of the insurgents as their militia. This would put us in an untenable position. Rumsfeld, in turn, shared Steele's assessment with Bush and Vice President Richard Cheney in a short memorandum a few days later. Malign Iranian Influence The sectarian activity that U.S. officials were seeing at the tactical level went hand-in-hand with an increase in destabilizing activity inside Iraq by the Iranian regime and its proxies. By fall 2005, Col. Kevin McDonnell, the commander of the 5th Special Forces Group and the Combined Joint Special Operations Task Force Arabian Peninsula, or CJSOTFAP, concluded that Iran was conducting a full-scale unconventional warfare campaign in Iraq to dominate the emerging Iraqi government while keeping the U.S.-led coalition off balance by supplying deadly, explosively formed penetrators, or EFP, to Shia militias. First introduced by Lebanese Hezbollah against the Israelis, EFPs were complex, shaped charge explosives that required careful milling of a concave copper plate that transformed into a molten slug when detonated. The copper slug offered significant advantages over a regular improvised explosive device, or IED, because it could penetrate the armor of almost all coalition vehicles, including the M1 tank, and because it could fly a reasonable distance and hit a target at a standoff range. MNFI statistics from the time showed that the weapon was becoming more prevalent. EFP attacks nearly tripled in just four months in mid-2005, from about 20 in June to 58 in October. By comparison, EFPs averaged only five per month through April 2005. Drawing on their extensive human intelligence network, McDonald's troops discovered that, in addition to providing EFPs to Shia militias, Iranian intelligence services and the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps of Iran, or IRGC, were creating front companies in Iraq to facilitate their covert activities, as well as funneling extensive financial support to the Badr Corps. In an effort to convince MNFI of the scope of Iranian subversive activity, the CJSOTF-AP held a briefing in October for Casey, Vines, Special Operations Command Central or Soxent Commander Brigadier General Francis Kearney, and Major General Richard P. Zahner, Casey's G-2. Casey and Zahner were skeptical and wanted concrete forensic evidence that corroborated the CJSOTF-AP's analysis before taking action. Though McDonald's human sources were adamant about Iranian intervention, MNFI's technical sources were not picking up the same indicators, making MNFI leaders cautious about the implications. To some at the meeting, it seemed as if technical capabilities had a halo effect, and Zoner and Casey put less stock in the CJSOTF-AP's human intelligence network, even though the allies in Southeast Iraq had limited technical capabilities. For his part, it is likely Casey's caution stemmed from the fact that U.S. national policy toward Iranian meddling in Iraq had not yet been set, and Casey understood that he was to avoid a regional expansion of the conflict. However, CJSOTF-AP reports concerned Casey enough that in late October 2005 he ordered his staff to draw up contingency plans for a possible conflict with the IRGC and other Iranian operatives in Iraq and tasked his staff judge-advocate to determine whether the IRGC Cods Force, or IRGC QF, could legally be declared a hostile force. Such a declaration would make Cods Force operatives enemy combatants, allowing coalition forces to kill them on sight no matter if they demonstrated hostile intent first. The legal review found that not only had the Cods Force provided guidance, training, logistics, and financial support to Shia militants, it had also, quote, supported two separate Iraqi EFP networks by sponsoring EFP-IED training in Iraq, Iran, and Lebanon and facilitating movement of EFP network personnel and equipment between Iran and Iraq. Such activities are clearly hostile and constitute a direct threat to the security and stability of Iraq. Despite the clarity of Iranian culpability in the deaths of Americans, the memorandum cautioned against the action, noting quote, a sweeping hostile force declaration against the IRGCQF could result in an increase in Iranian support to Iraqi insurgents and lead to open confrontation with Iran. End quote. The memorandum also noted that most Cod's force members operated mainly in multinational division southeast or MNDSE and the British were not required to honor an American hostile force declaration. Getting British support for such a project undoubtedly would have been difficult. McDonald's information about Iranian activity, including the infiltration of EFPs across the southeastern Iraqi border, was sharply at odds with reporting from Multinational Division Southeast, or MNDSE, which reflected little malign Iranian activity. To resolve this incoherence, McDonnell hoped to position a special forces company and a partnered Iraqi commando battalion in Basra, where they could capture hard evidence or potentially push some of the EFP smuggling farther north into areas with a greater concentration of American forces. Enlisting the aid of Major General Nicholas R. Parker, the British Deputy Commander of MNCI, McDonnell traveled to Basra in December to convince MNDSE leaders to allow American special operations forces into the province. British commanders, however, quietly declined the offer out of concern that CJSOTF operations could spark violence with Iran's local proxies, potentially disrupting MNDSE's fragile equilibrium and making a British withdrawal more difficult. Unable to get British consent, McDonnell focused his troops in MNDCS on the mission, and they soon delivered the evidence Casey and Zahner had required. Six months after being rebuffed by MNDSE, CJSOTF AP Operational Detachment Alphas, or ODAs, intercepted crates of the copper plates that went into making EFPs, and all were turned on the same lathe in Iran. The FBI traced several Nokia phones captured in the same shipment back to their origin in Japan, where they found the purchase order that had shipped them to Iran. End of Chapter 18, Part 1 Defeated by Democracy Winter 2005-2006 Read by Adam Cable Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 2021